right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the No Laying Up podcast. DJ Pajowski here filling in for our newly married host, Solly, who I believe uh, was last spotted on Instagram mowing his new lawn for the first time. Uh, just all kinds of life changes going on for Solly this week. Congratulations to him. He'll be back soon. In the meantime, uh, we have a very timely podcast today with Jim Urbina. Jim has been in the golf design business for a long, long time, and the reason I'm calling this a timely podcast is that not only was he the co-designer of Old McDonald, which you saw in episode four of this season of Tour Sauce, uh, he was also instrumental in building Pacific Dunes with Tom Doak, and he also built the Punch Bowl, the putting course at Bandon Dunes that we all know and love. And all of these are things you can see in this season of Tour Sauce presented by our good friends at Precision Pro Rangefinders. I got to tell you guys, uh, I'm up at Pinehurst this week caddying for our young hitter, Lauren Coughlin, in the Symmetra Tour event. I did not realize this. Maybe you guys didn't realize this. Uh, Rangefinders totally allowed during competition on the Symmetra Tour uh, as of this year. That was a great surprise to me and a nice anxiety release to me as I was freaking out for the last week trying to make sure I would be able to get the right numbers. Uh, I'm pretty helplessly reliant on my rangefinder at this point, but uh, all of my fears were put to bed when uh, she told me that on the as on our way to the first tee, basically, uh, on, on Tuesday morning. So I will tell you that my Precision Pro NX9 rangefinder is now officially competition tested. We used it all day today, all day yesterday, uh, and I got to say, I think it was working. Lauren had one of only six rounds under par today in brutal conditions conditions were tough out at pinehurst number nine the c-suite the strap boys and even the narc they always call me the narc in these in these ad reads uh you can call me dj you can call me the narc either one is fine we all trust precision pro golf to help us pick the right club and swing with confidence and right now our listeners can get twenty dollars off the best-selling nx9 slope rangefinder by going to precisionprogolf.com and using coupon code no laying up at checkout that is twenty dollars off our favorite rangefinder the nx9 slope swing with confidence hit more greens with precision pro golf now on to my conversation with Jim Urbina. Jim, where I wanted to start is uh, I, I saw somewhere, I think it was Colorado Avid Golfer, something like that, called you a 30-year overnight sensation. First of all, is that, is that a fair characterization? And second of all, what does that mean? You know, it's funny you talk about the Avid Golfer magazine article. A good friend of mine who I've grown to admire, Tom Farrell, the writer, said, you know, Jim, You've been everywhere, and nobody knows where you've been. And I kind of laughed and chuckled at that. So maybe that 30-year sensation is aptly coined, but it's true. I've been a lot of places, and when I tell people I've worked at Pasa Tempo, the Mid-Ocean Club, the Valley Club, San Francisco Golf Club, you never, you would never know that I was there, so... That's kind of a good thing. I don't put my stamp on it. And places like Pack Dunes, Old Mac, the Punch Bowl, they were all great projects to be a part of. But again, hardly anybody knows that I was there. Yeah. So what's that what's that like for you? What's that what's that been like, you know, kind of being a little bit behind the scenes, I guess? There was a lot of famous behind the scenes guys, if you don't mind, I'll mention a few. 
If it wasn't for Robert Hunter, a lot of people don't know this, if it wasn't for Robert Hunter, Alistair McKenzie wouldn't be so famous in California. And if it wasn't for Seth Rayner, Charles Blair McDonald would have never got off his creation at the National Golf Links of America. So I don't mind and I cherish that behind-the-scenes addition to the project, but without Seth Rayner, without Robert Hunter, without a lot of the guys who were out there shaping, when I did work for Pete Dye shaping the golf course, Pete would be the first to tell you uh, that I need shapers, I need guys to help me build these things. Uh, it's easy to lay something down on paper, but somebody's got to build it. So I love it. I don't mind it. I cherish it. Well, so it's funny. I know we had uh, Bobby Weed on the podcast uh, a couple weeks ago, and he was talking with Chris, our host, about you know the, this massive tree of architects that all kind of stems stems back to to Pete Dye. And I know you have your own branch on that tree. Uh, and I'm curious, first of all, what was your path to to getting there to actually like hooking up with with Pete and and starting to work with him? And then second, what was that like? I mean, what what was your uh, experience with him like? Well, it's funny. Uh, I always joke with people that I was an accidental participant. And what I mean by that is I never intended to be a golf course builder, a golf course designer. Uh, Pete Dye never said that we were golf course architects. There's no such thing. You don't go to school to college to be a golf course architect. You go to school to be a landscape architect, a land planner, Pete Dye was an insurance salesman, a very good player in his own right, but an insurance salesman. So we are all builders. And so I never intended to be in the business, but a lot of people don't know this. I used to fight forest fires in the summertime in college to earn money. And I was getting ready to go take a job with the Lolo National Forest to be in their hotshot crew and possibly be a smoke jumper. But my soon-to-be wife, father-in-law, said, that's not a very good job. You ought to go get a job on a golf course. So <laughs> I, I applied, I applied uh, just to, to make him happy. I applied at a golf course in Colorado, uh, which would be known as the TPC of Plum Creek. And the architect of record was Pete Dye. I applied, unfortunately or fortunately, however you look at it, <clears throat> They hired me the next day, <laughs> and so I started as a ditch digger, a, a stick picker, a rock raker, and then I got to be a shaper, and then, as as a lot of people know now today, the rest is history. What was your uh, experience with golf before? I mean, had, did you play the game, or were you uh, just, no. just fighting forest fires? No, I just fought forest fires, and, <laughs> and I, trained, I trained to be a teacher. I was a, a high school drafting teacher. So I understood how to draw plans, and I understood how to read topography maps. So that little beknownst to me, that was really a foundation for when I got into the golf business. I understand how to look at golf courses, how to look at maps in a three-dimensional form. So little did I know, possibly, I was training for my future uh, career. But at that time in 1982, when I applied to to be in the construction part of the golf uh, at TPC Plum Creek, 
I was hired again, as I said, to be working in the ditches and to learn how to be a shaper running a bulldozer. Never played golf. And to Pete's credit, Pete never wanted me to learn how to play golf because he said it would taint my view on how to look and build and design the golf course. Isn't that interesting? That is. And I'm, I'm curious what that meant. Uh, first of all, I want to mention I was on the high school drafting team. So I feel like I've been training for this. I've been training for this interview to pretend like I know what you're talking about uh, throughout this whole thing. So, bird, Birds of a feather. You'll be the next uh, famous golf course architect. It just takes time. Be patient. It just takes 30, 30 years. Yeah. Talk to me in 30 That's years. Right. We'll be, we'll be right. dialed. Uh, so what do you think he meant by that? I mean, what was the, you know, I don't want you, I don't want you to taint your, uh, taint your eye or anything. What does that imply there's some biases, would you say, with architects? Or what, what did you think he meant there? Absolutely, there's biases in, 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 in architecture. Because if you, as some people have said, Jack Nicholas played a high fade. And so some of his designs were in favor of that high fade. Pete wanted to be the editor. Pete wanted to be the designer. But he appreciated my ability to run a bulldozer and to shape his style of design, and then he would edit it. But he felt, and I believe this to be true today, that if I was a very good golfer, I possibly would never think about what a high handicapper player would play, the, how he would play the golf course. Or I would only think about straight shots, uh, high draws, and what the best players and how they play it. So Pete said, let me be the editor. Let me be the designer. You build them for me and, and, and don't let that game that you play possibly taint your creativity. So, you know, at that point in your in your career, I mean, did you have a philosophy on, on kind of what made a good a good golf hole? And then now, you know, flashing forward, obviously, you've you've done as much research on on architects on strategy on all these different things restoring all these golf courses you've worked on so uh, i'm curious if uh that's how that strategy's changed i guess over the years well i never had a plan i never had a concept i never had a strategy i was waiting to be taught i was waiting to be mentored and pete die and his son perry die mentored me they taught me what they wanted they sent me to golf courses around the country to emulate some of their designs. I remember Pete Dye sending me on the plane to Palm Springs to look at a Redan hole that he was building while we were doing it at Arizona State University. He said, Jim, get on the plane. I want you to go look at this hole I did in Palm Springs. Or go get on the plane and go to Pinehurst, number two, And uh, as, you, as you we speak today. Pete Dye told me to go to Pinehurst, number two. I have a lot to learn. Or he would tell me to go to Old Marsh in, in, in Florida and see how they did the drainage. So it was Pete who sent me on the plane. Just got to remember, I was 22, 23 years old, getting on a plane, going to these golf courses. I didn't get to play them. I just walked, walked around, took pictures, and then I'd come back and build it. I mean, that's a pretty cool job for a 23-year-old. <laughs> it's a pretty cool job for anybody. I agree. And, and little did I know that I was beginning my education in golf course design and construction, being an open book, wanting to learn. Do you know that he sent me, the Dye family sent me to, to Scotland to learn how the game was formed because I asked a simple question, what does Lynx golf mean? Right. They put me on 
<laughs> on a plane in 1986. I went to Presswick, Scotland, and I learned about what Lynx Golf is. Who does that today? Who no does doubt. that today? That sounds like the high times of the, uh, of the golf course design business. Back then it was. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, again, Pete and his son Perry, they would send me everywhere. I went to the National Golf Links of America back in 19, I believe, 86, while still working for the Dye family. I was so enamored with the look when I saw it in the book. This is, this is how funny and naive I was. I was looking at a book, uh, uh, a golf architecture book, and I saw a picture of the National Golf Links of America, the 17th hole. And I said to somebody, I can't remember who was standing by me, I said, look at this golf course just looks like what we're doing for Pete. And little <laughs> did I know that Pete was emulating the National Golf Links of America. That's how naive I was. What do you remember about, you know, all those all those trips around? I mean, do you have a, a couple of specific holes that you saw that were real aha moments or kind of, you know, light switch moments for you? For sure. I remember going to California. Uh, Mr. Dye had sent me to, believe it or not, go see Carmel Valley Ranch. It was a golf course he did for Landmark Land in, 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 the, in the Monterey Peninsula. Sent me there and... <laughs> And I thought, well, wait a minute. There's some really cool golf courses uh, right next door. Maybe I should go look at those <laughs> right. too. And so I went to see Pebble Beach on my own. I went to see Cypress Point on my own. And I thought, wow, these golf courses are so beautiful. They're so different. And yet I was building golf courses for Pete and his son Perry. And I'm thinking, why didn't they send me to Cypress Point or Pebble Beach? So I was starting to gain an appreciation for why golf courses were different. I would go to Carmel Valley, but I would go to Pebble Beach and Cypress Point to study golf course architecture. He would send me to Pinehurst Number 2, but I'd go see all the other Donald Ross courses and, and, and all of the good golf courses in Pinehurst. I went to the National Golf Links of America, but I went to Shinnecock and Maidstone. And I started to tour all those golf courses. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm getting this chance to learn about all this architecture. And then he sends me to Scotland and it all starts to make sense to me. All starts to make sense how the game was formed, where its roots were started. And I was hooked. I started reading and I thought, I get it now. I get it. The dies set me to where the game began. And I, little did I know that that would pay high dividends years to come when Mike Kaiser hired us and I helped build Pacific Dunes on the coast of Oregon. We're going to crescendo with, uh, with all the band and stuff. I promise we're going we're gonna to get there for, with plenty of that. But I hate to ask a question that I'm afraid to hear the answer to, but you weren't playing any golf during this stretch? You're just, yes. You're just tooling around? No, no, no. I, I started to play golf. Okay, good. Okay, good. That would have yeah. been tough to hear otherwise. Well, you're going to laugh. You're going to laugh. This is, again, how naive I was. They sent me to Scotland, and I didn't have a golf bag, so I went down to the local. Uh, I lived in Southern California at the time. I went to, have you ever heard of Vans? Oh, yeah, the grocery store. Well, the, the, there was a Vans golf shop in Southern California. Oh, really? Okay. And so I went and bought a big old golf bag, like on the tour. This bag was like about, it was the size of Rodney Dangerfield's golf bag in Caddyshack. And I bought some cheap clubs and I loaded up and I went to Scotland. And when the caddy saw my bag, 
he was like, <laughs> I'm not going to carry that. <laughs> yeah, look uh, ex- extremely American when you arrived. Extremely American. Again, remember, I was so naive and I was starting to learn how to play the game. And I didn't realize it was just as simple as carrying a, a shag bag with five clubs in it. But back then, I was going to go play golf. So I figured I had to buy this big golf bag. I still have the photo. You'll laugh if I ever showed it to you. <laughs> so what? how would you describe uh, Pete Dye like, in, in the field? I mean, what was it like? I know the everybody kind of talks about the whole thing is built on flexibility and you can't be too rigid with plans and, and all that stuff. I mean, how much of that was, was kind of him editing in the field and how much of that was, was you and, and you guys kind of having the freedom to, to do what your eye saw? Well, it's interesting. When I first started shaping at TPC at Plum Creek, I just did what they told me to do. Shape a flat T spot, build a bunker, create a green site. And I remember shaping on the 16th hole at uh, TPC at Plum Creek in Castle Rock, Colorado. I started to shape the green and Pete kind of drug his foot, foot around in the dirt. And he said, you know, just put it right here, Jimmy, just put it right here. And so I started shaping it and he watched me shape. He stood right there by the green. He watched me shape it. And he said, stop, 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 stop. And I got off the dozer and I said, uh, what, what's wrong? He said, let me show you how to do that. And he jumps on a tractor and he kind of puts the box blade down on this tractor and starts to drag out the shape that he wanted. He said, this is what I want. If you could do this, this is what I want. So that was my learning curve. That was my my inspiration that you didn't look at a set of plans. You just built it in the dirt. And then if you didn't like it, you changed it again. And so years later at Arizona State University, I'll never forget this. We got out and we were getting ready to go walk around the golf course. And an engineer got out a set of plans for behind the seat of the truck. And he started to roll them out with Pete Dye there and uh, a couple of the shapers. And I was the design associate at that time. I didn't shape at Arizona State University. I was the on-site design associate. The engineer rolls out these plans and Pete Dye said, "Uh, uh, son, we won't be needing those today. And so... (laughs) That was uh, that reinforcement that we're going to go, we're going to follow the routing and we're going to follow the the stakes, but we're going to build this in the field. And I remember getting to the 16th hole and Pete would drop down to his knees in the dirt and he would shape this, this dirt landform. And he would look at me and he'd say, Jimmy, I want you to just take this green and, and, and just think of somebody kneeling in the dirt, okay? He's shaping this green in the dirt and he's taking the flow and the surface and he he digs a little hole with his hand and creates a bunker and, and he shakes the dirt and molds it and he looks at me and says, do you get it, Jim? Do you get it? And I said, yeah, Pete, I got it. So do you see what I'm learning and how I'm to how to build these golf courses? You build them in the dirt, you take the plans and and, and you set a routing but then it's time to build them in the dirt. And that was my foundation for how I even golf, do golf courses today. Hey, everybody. TC here to tell you about wine access. I'm the one talking about it because this is something that's near and dear to my heart. We have trouble getting good wine down here in Jacksonville. There's not a whole lot of importers and distributors in this area. I've been going nuts on wine access the last two or three weeks here. Uh, they set up wineaccess.com slash NLU to give users 15% off their first three purchases which uh, that's come in quite handy. They really just 
make it so that finding great wine isn't a matter of access or finding the right purveyor. They will bring it all to you. They've got some, they've got a master sommelier on staff. They've got a master of wine. They've got, they've got all sorts of uh, expertise in this area, all sorts of uh, Santa Rita Hills, Pinot Noir sitting in my cart right now. We've got a lot of Northern Rhone stuff. Uh, we've got a whole big refuge wine club meets every, every week. And, and really as far as wine goes, you may have some questions about buying it online and getting it shipped, but they've got zip by zip temperature controlled shipping and uh, satisfaction guarantee. So they will credit you for any bottle that fails to impress. They've also got a new podcast, uh, the Wine Access Podcast. It actually launched uh, just a few days ago. Go check that out wherever you get your podcasts and check out wineaccess.com slash NLU. They've got a wine club as well. And um, yeah, some of the best prices out there and probably the best selection I've seen online. Now, let's get back to the pod. So I know I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but you obviously worked with Tom Doak for, I think, 17, 18 years, something like that. And and one of the, the projects that just kind of springs to mind as you're talking about some of this stuff is is Sabonic and trying to collaborate there with with Jack Nicholas and, and kind of a, a pretty famous, uh, famous collaboration there. I'm curious how a, a system like that works when you basically have two architects, two teams, uh, all of those, you know, those kinds of factors, and, and you're trying to figure out how to also be flexible. Is that is that the right way to say it? Well, you have to be flexible. Uh, there was actually three architects. A lot of people don't know that. There were three architects at Sabonic. There was Mr. Jack Nicholas, uh, Tom, and Michael Pascucci, the owner. So <laughs> <laughs> when Jack and, and Tom uh, needed a tiebreaker, Michael Pascucci filled in. So the owner always has a hand in the look and, and, and the style of the architecture because, you know, he's spent some money, he's acquired the land, he has some ideas. So we as builders, we as designers, listen to the owner, but it was really three people involved at Sabonic. But yes, the, the architect of record was Tom Doak and, 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 and Jack Nicholas, and I was assigned to uh, blend that together and create uh, features as the on-site design associate, uh, show the shapers what we were going to do, float the greens out, uh, work with the superintendent, Garrett Boddington, to, to manage all of that and create what you see today, Sabana Golf Club. Have you ever played it? I haven't, no. I will tell you that it is a thought process of two designers and an owner that, you know, the greens are, some would say, are, some are pretty difficult, uh, it's a true test of golf, as as good players would say. It hosted the U.S. Women's Open, and it was it was a test for them. Michael wanted a golf course that that people would enjoy, but yet still be tested. And uh, Mr. Nicholas and and Tom uh, provided that, and I was a a, a fortunate, a very fortunate, uh, a participant in that. And little did I know that uh, someday. 25 years later, I'd be working with the iconic Jack Nicklaus. Who would have thought a guy who never played golf, who didn't understand the game, would be working with the one of the iconics of all time? How, how did you notice his style different than, you know, Mr. Dye or, or kind of what your own style had been at that time? Well, Jack had his his holes that he wanted to, to build, design. And, and, you know, he had very uh, good success at some of his best golf courses, Muirfield, uh, in, in Ohio and some of his great golf courses in Arizona and in Florida. So he knew what his style that he wanted. And what uh, Tom and I brought 
was the naturalism, uh, the routing that Tom had produced. So there was a blend of, 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 of good architecture in the routing, uh, good uh, style of shaping in the bunkers and greens in the presentation, and the strategy that Nicholas brought with his, with his game. Uh, I'll never forget one day we were, uh, Jack and I had a lot of fun, a lot, lot of fun on that project. And, and I remember one day we were talking about adjusting a bunker. And I was standing in the bunker, and it was on the seventh hole at Sabonic, and I was saying, well, you know, if you stand right here, you could, you could get the ball, hit it out sideways. And Jack said to me, he says, well, hit it out sideways, you've got to be able to hit it to the green. And I said, well, you don't always have to hit it to the green. And he said, a good player would want to be able to do that. So you can see the difference between my, again, my, my uh, thought process in shaping the golf hole and the thought process of a tour player, 18-time uh, major champion, <laughs> saying, I got to get out of this bunker if I get in it and I got to get to the green. You can see the difference in the style of architecture. Yeah, you guys may have been coming at it from slightly different perspectives. But in the end, Michael Pascucci got the golf course that he wanted, a very beautiful setting. I hope you get to play it someday. And Jack got what he wanted. Uh, Renaissance Golf Tom got what he wanted. And me, the participant, got to enjoy all of it. Well, I definitely want to get into some more some more stuff with you and Tom and, and some, some band and stuff. But before I do, I know you worked on uh, a lot of the Japanese golf courses as well. Was that late 80s, early 90s time frame? Is that right? That was. Uh, actually, that's how I uh, evolved from the shaper the shaper of the Dye family to working on plans for Asian golf courses on the Asian rim with Pete's son, Perry. I uh, moved into the office and I started doing grading plans and draining, drainage plans and, and um, uh, greens detail plans. And so I evolved into starting to do that, but I only actually was involved with one in the field and that was Sazantso Country Club. I'll never forget it, and that was that was my uh, my foray into Japanese golf. I'm telling you what, that was an eye opener for me. Uh, I learned a lot, and I can tell you that the Japanese at that time in the late '80s were fanatics about golf course architecture, golf course design, and I built, I shaped and built an island green at Sazanso Country Club, one of the best I was ever uh, a part of. Yeah, I'm dying. I'm dying to get to Japan, and it just every aspect of golf in Japan fascinates me. And so when I saw that, or read that that you had worked on so many of those, that it kind of sent my mind into a bit of a a craze. But yeah, what was the, you know, what were the the big um, sticking points of design over there? What were kind of the obsessions, or what were the what was the difference between what you were doing here and and what was really being asked for over there? Well, I can tell you that my evolution in golf course design and construction has come 360 degrees. Remember, I started with Pete Dye, the TPC of Plum Creek, a championship golf course. And then they sent me to Scotland to study Lynx golf. And then I started to work for Renaissance Golf for with Renaissance Golf for 17 years. But all through that process, never did I think that I was going to be building a golf course in Japan. The Japanese loved water features. <laughs> that was the one of the most important things to them. The beauty of the golf course, the garden concept. I was involved with a golf course that had a 25-foot waterfall. <laughs> that I am not kidding you. 
the the water think with me now think with me you're not going to believe this Cezanso Country Club had water that cascaded off the clubhouse into a pool on the 18th green surrounding 270 degrees of the green and then that pool cascaded down into a waterfall almost 20 feet into the fairway below and that stream then emptied into the big pond that had the island green that tell me they didn't love water features. <laughs> I'm surprised uh, Mr. Kaiser didn't ask you to run that back at Old McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people give me a hard time about you know, fountains and waterfalls. That's not my specialty. Maybe I got burned out while I was in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, changing gears then a little bit. I mean, how did... Uh, how did you connect with Tom Doak for the first time and, and kind of how did that relationship start? I first met Tom at the TPC at Plum Creek. He had just come from Long Cove Golf Club in, uh, in South Carolina and he had come to the TPC at Plum Creek. We were almost done with construction, but he was uh, on the construction crew. He was, he was in charge of helping pick sticks and, and rake. And I met him, and I thought he was a kind of an odd kind of guy because uh, a, a friend of mine in the construction business, the project manager at the TPC of Plum Creek, we knew that uh, Tom was a, a, a lover of baseball statistics. So Steve was his name, bought a book on uh, statistical points of, of baseball, and we used to quiz Tom all the time, all day long about certain baseball things. We'd hide the book behind our back and we'd, <laughs> we'd read something and, and then quiz him like we really knew and cared. And, you know, and, you know, he'd come up with the answers and Steve and I would just slap each other and think, God, this guy knows everything about baseball. So that was our running joke between us. So that's where I first met Tom. Uh, he went on to go do other work on his own. He got his own, his first uh, client at High Point in, in, in Traverse City, Michigan. And I continued to work with the dyes. But, you know, after eight or nine years, I just, I just was ready for something different. And I kid people, and, and I, I kid this, but with all due respect, I remember being able to move a million cubic yards in my sleep almost, because that's kind of what Pete did. And I was just time for a change. And and I, I called Tom up and I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm ready to do something different. And he knew that I had been traveling and seeing golf courses like the National Golf Links of America. And he knew I had been to Pinehurst and he knew I'd been to Cypress Point. So he knew that I was, you know, something of a, a, a bit of an oddity to that, that I didn't play golf, but I had seen some of the best golf courses in the United States and had been to St. Andrews. So he wanted to talk to me. So we met, and I said, you know, I'm ready to do something different. So I signed on with Renaissance Golf Design. A lot of people don't know this. It was Tom Doak, Gil Hands, and myself for a small point in time. We all, we all worked together. And I was in charge of Charlotte Golf Links, a golf course in Charlotte, North Carolina, while Tom and Gil were working at Stonewall. And so... Tom would come down and check on me, you know, about every, I don't know, eight weeks, six to eight weeks. So I really built the golf course on my own while Gil and Tom were up at, at Stonewall. And then Gil came down for the last couple uh, uh, visits 
and help me with uh, with the construction of the 17th and 18th at Charlotte Golf Links. So that's how I began my career with Renaissance Golf Design at Charlotte Golf Links. And then I went on to go on and build uh, and work with Tom on uh, on many projects. Uh, some of my f- uh, most beloved uh, is a golf course in Arizona called Apache Stronghold. I wish this st- was still open today. It was such a beautiful desert setting, and, and maybe someday they'll bring it back. Well, I feel like, you know, obviously people listening to this podcast know Tom's name. They know his golf courses. They know his work. But, you know, as somebody who who has known him so so closely for so long and worked with him so closely for so long, you know, I don't want to say what is what is he best at, but what, what impresses you most about him as far as his, his skill set goes or his, his talent level goes? You know, it's funny. Uh, a couple of people have asked me that. And what I learned most about a Tom Doak designed golf course constructed golf course is that 75% of the battle is the land. It's not about the greens, although they're important. And it's not about the bunkers, although they're important. The routing is very important. But just think about this. If you have this land that is just off the charts, topography, beauty, character, sand. Those were all the ingredients for some of the best golf courses I had seen. And so it made sense that, as in Tom's liking, if you got the land to start with, Pacific Dunes on the coast of Oregon, that you had already solved 75% of the battle. So that's what I learned most about Tom. And that's today what I still do when I'm looking at uh, designs on my own. Find the best piece of land, work with the people that know that land's important, and you're 75% of the way there. Well, one thing I do got to ask, I know uh, we had Mike Kaiser on our, our first Bandon episode, and, and he was kind of giving some of the backstory about about the, the project getting started, and, and he had a line in there, you know, I would have loved to, to have hired Tom, but he was terrible Tom at the time. And I'm curious uh, if you could shed some light on maybe what that means. And, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no light, no shedding. Let's go on to the next question. <laughs> yeah, no, I assume that, that it had to be, you know, it had to be a bit of him just being steadfast in his, uh, in his design. Is that, is that fair, a fair characterization? You know, all designers, whether it be McDonald, C.B. McDonald, Alistair McKenzie, Perry Maxwell, some of my favorites, Donald Ross, <clears throat> you have to have passion and you have to have a willingness to know and to do the right thing. And you know as well as I do, if somebody was to give you this unbelievable piece of land and then ask you to put in fountains and waterfalls, you would have to speak your piece, right? <laughs> Right. Absolutely. And so honesty sometimes isn't the best policy. But what I learned from Pete Dye is that just be honest, do the best you can and everything will work out. And I think that Tom was honest that he when he saw a good piece of property, if you thought that adding a pond or a fountain or a waterfall was a good idea, he was going to tell you something different. And that's no different than Alistair McKenzie, no different than A.W. Tilly's task, no different than C.B. McDonald. The conviction to do the right thing, the conviction to think what you have in your mind is the right puzzle uh, uh, 
solving the puzzle on this piece of land. And so you have to have conviction and you have to stand by that. How, uh, how did you guys complement each other? I mean, what was kind of his strengths? What were your strengths? Uh, I'm curious how that relationship was. We were total opposite. That's how we complemented each other. <laughs> well, I'm honest. I'm, I'm, I'm being honest with you. We were total opposite. And so when he was thinking about this idea for the green or uh, this idea for the bunker, I was thinking of something different. Remember my background. I didn't go to Cornell to train in landscape architecture where Mr. Jones went. I went to the school of dirt and construction, Pete Dye. And so we were opposite. And I believe, I believe deep down in my heart, because we were so opposite of each other, that the products that we produced were the benefit of us both thinking in different ways and different things and in different uh, possibilities for, for a different outcome. But blending that all together to get the right green site, to get the right fairway contour, to get the right bunker strategy, always thinking different, not saying and agreeing with him, but being polar opposite, that was the best compliment we could give each other. Well, obviously, you were you were heavily involved uh, with Pacific Dunes, which will be the episode that's airing uh, this coming Tuesday that we're running. But uh, I'm curious, kind of when that project first came up, when even but even before that, I mean, when you the first time you heard about Bandon Dunes, I mean, what what was that story like? Well, the the first time that uh, Tom said meet me because I lived in in Denver, I live in Denver, Colorado. Tom lived in Traverse City. He wanted me to move to Traverse City. And, and, and be in an office. And I said, well, you know, it doesn't make sense for me to do that since we're going to always be on site anyway. How about I live in Denver and I'll just meet you wherever we need to meet? And so he agreed to that. And I remember him giving me a call and said, uh, meet me in Bandon. We're going to go walk the site for uh, what's going to be the second golf course at Bandon Dunes Resort. And so I remember landing in Eugene, Oregon. Have you flown into Eugene? I have. So just think of me, uh, a neophyte still, landing in Eugene, Oregon, and there's a camera crew. There's a four or five-piece camera crew that's on the plane with me, and they're landing in, in Eugene, and they're getting these big uh, SUVs, and they're headed to North Bend Coos Bay, and they're asking for directions. And I'm thinking, what's this camera crew doing here? I'm going down that way too. Little did I know they were covering a ship had gone aground. Do you ever do you ever remember that story? No. Yeah, there was a big freighter container ship that had broke loose and grounded itself on the beach in in North Bend Coos Bay, and I was on the plane with the big camera crew that was coming to cover the breaking story, and I'm thinking. What's that? This place must be famous. <laughs> I was like, wow, I'm, I'm going to be following this camera crew down there. But little did I know, I was still going to go 20 minutes south to a town called Bandon. I remember driving into the town of Bandon looking for the property, and they said, no, uh, you got to go north. And uh, I was just so confused and, and trying to find the property. It took me all day to find it. By the time I got to the property, it was the end of the day. But that's when I met Tom and, and Mr. Kaiser, and the next day was was a total eye opener. The day we walked the property. Well, tell me about it. What, what was what do you remember? 
I remember thinking how beautiful this place was. <clears throat> I remember that we were asked to play band and dunes. They had were doing some preview rounds. And I remember playing band and dunes. It was me, Mr. Kaiser, uh, Tom, I think Josh Lesnick was there. Uh, Shu was, was uh, I, I, if he didn't caddy for us, he had arranged to get some caddies. And I remember it raining. And I remember walking around the golf course at Bandon Dunes thinking, well, this is, this is the first uh, go around from Mr. Kaiser. We're going to get to do the second piece of uh, second golf course. Where is our land at? Because I didn't get a chance to see the land. But when we got to the sixth and seventh hole, I remember being pointed looking to the north saying, that's our land up there. And I'm thinking, wow, we are so freaking lucky. <laughs> I couldn't believe what my eyes had gazed upon. It reminded me of those golf course landforms of Scotland and Ireland that I had toured 20 years ago. So I could hardly wait till we, to, to make the first walk around with Mr. Kaiser and Tom. And I remember us walking and walking and walking and looking and thinking and working on the routing and trying to come up with ideas so that we would go back to the hotel at Bandon. Uh, there was no lodge at the time. We stayed in the, in the hotel at Bandon uh, overlooking the Minute Cafe. Have you ever ate at the Minute Cafe? I have. So that's a great place, right? Yeah, so absolutely. We would go down to the Minute Cafe, have breakfast, and then we would drive back to Bandon. And for three or four days straight, we walked and walked and looked, always trying to find how this routing was going to come about. And I thought to myself, I just kept saying to myself over and over, I can't believe I'm on the coast of Oregon. I can't believe we're going to get a chance to build this golf course. I can't wait to get started can we start tomorrow? So when you're when you're going second, you know that's that's been the joke that I think Tom and and David Kidd have kind of said a bunch is, you know, what would you do differently? And and David keeps saying, well, I would have gone second. You know, kind of implying that that there's there's quite a bit of advantage to going second. Uh, I'm curious if that's how you guys felt, and and B, kind of what what was that advantage? What did you guys what did you guys see as as things that you could improve upon? Well, I'm not so sure that it was improving upon. But I believe that it was doing something different. And the recollection of golf holes that were inspirational to me were Presswick and St. Andrews and, and Royal Troon and Western Gales. Those were the holes that were inspirational to me. And when I looked at Bandon Dunes, I thought, well, we got to do something different than that. And Tom was on board with that. He already knew that we were going to do something different. So when David says you get to go second, you got to remember and and you have to give David Kidd credit. He had to show Mr. Kaiser what Lynx golf was about. Although Mike Kaiser had played Lynx golf, my uh, David Kidd was was able to bring that style of architecture. Not having the clubhouse on the coast, having the golf course uh, route out to the ocean and back, and we were now in charge of doing something different. And I'll never forget one of the shapers that, that worked for us is by the, a gentleman by the name of Tony Russell. And he has done shaping for Bill Coor. He has done shaping for us. He has done shaping for David Kidd. He's done shaping for a lot of people. And I remember walking him up at, on uh, 
the land, which is now the ninth hole at Pacific Dunes. And I remember telling him, see that golf course down there, Tony? We're going to do nothing like it. And he started laughing because he thought, wait a minute, that golf course is a highly ranked golf course. And I said, well, it's highly ranked, but we can't be like that. We have to be something different. And our our land is different. So we have to come up with some different style of of, of design, of bunkering, of greens, and our locations are going to be different. So I knew, Tom knew that we were going to do something completely different. But we also had to respect that at that time, Bandon Dunes was highly ranked and highly, highly thought of. And we were just going to try to do the best we could to match David Kids work at Bandon. So for those who have been there or those who haven't, I mean, how, how would you kind of specifically explain, you know, how the styles are different, if, if that makes sense? Well, I always explain to people the Pacific Dunes greens are on, on the ground. They're within inches of where they were in the routing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So when you go to the seventh hole at Pacific Dunes, those mounds in front and those blowouts on the left side, I have a photo of that. I, I know what that looked like before we got started, and it's not much different than what it is today other than a little bit of shaping of the green site. When you go to the 16th green at Pacific Dunes, that bunker in the back, what we affectionately call Josh's pit behind <laughs> the green, that yep. was there. That green surface was within inches of what you saw. The ninth green, the lower green, that's within inches of what was already there. So we were building a golf course and taking the landforms that were there within inches and just massaging them to get ready for a putting green. And I thought, wow, we're, 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 we're taking these beautiful green sites, 16, lower nine, uh, 11, 11 was, was uh, what a beautiful setting. I could go on and on. You could understand my passion for the beauty of Pacific Dunes. It was on the ground. Those bunkers were there. It was just clearing the land and, and, and installing irrigation and sowing the seed so that when you walked and played the golf course, it looked like we didn't do a thing. And then how, how did the process of Old Mac get started then? Well, little did I know when we were working at Pacific Dunes, I always looked at that land over there thinking, eh, that's going to be a golf course someday. I wonder who's going to get to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Ten years later, Mike Kaiser calls us back because he enjoyed, I believe he enjoyed working with us so much. Uh, I certainly did with Mike. He had this idea to build the Lido. So the Lido was McDonald and Seth Rayner's second best golf course, some people would say, uh, compared to the National. But Mike always wanted to do the Lido. But we couldn't fit the actual lay of the land golf course on the land he had given us. So the idea was brought about that we would build golf holes in, with the inspiration of, of McDonald and Rayner, the template holes. And so we simply took the golf course topography that Mike gave us and we instituted the four automatic template holes short Eden the Beer Ritz and the Redan 
in any McDonald and Rainer golf course, you always had to have those four one-shot holes. So Mike understood that we were going to do uh, a Alito-style golf course, not exactly, but a Alito-style golf course using the templates that McDonald and Rainer were famous for. And so that's how the routing came about. And with the help of Mike Kaiser, he is such a perfect person to work for. He never tells you, he never says you've got to do this and got to do that. He listens to you. We walk around. He makes suggestions. It was such an honor to work with him at Pacific Dunes, and it was such an honor to work at Old Mac. Creating his idea of what McDonald and Rayner would have done with that piece of ground, I think that we did our best effort and some of the best holes, the Alps, the Channel Hole, the Punch Bowl, the Double Plateau with the principal's nose. I thought we did a pretty good job. Not exactly like McDonald and Raider did, but used that inspiration to create old McDonald. And as you know, those greens are some of the biggest greens you'll ever play. Still not as big as St. Andrews, but pretty doggone big. Do you feel like there's a lot of creativity working with template holes? Do you feel like there's restraint working with temp- with the template holes? How, how how did you find that to be? Good question. That's a great question. And the reason it's, it's a tough question to answer is because you know that the Redan, based on the 16th hole at, at North Berwick, you know that it has to play from right to left. It's a fortress. And you know the short has to play 135 to 145, and it should have a thumbprint in it. And you know that the Eden should have the Strath bunker and, and, and the Eden estuary behind it. So those are some of the foundations for the template holes. But taking those template holes and applying them no different than what McDonald Rayner did at Yale, at Fisher's Island, at Camargo, at Shore Acres, at Chicago Golf Club, applying those template holes to the land given to you, that is the artistry that we and I got to enjoy doing. Now, somebody would say, well, you know, the road hole. You know, how many times are you going to do that? Well, we did the road hole with inspiration from McDonald and Rayner and the 17th at St. Andrews, but we put our twist on it. We put our twist on the short. I remember walking Mike Kaiser up to that green for the first time, number five at Old Mac. We had walked the hogs back and we got to number five. It was Mike Kaiser, myself, and Ken Nice. He is the superintendent grow in for Pacific Dunes and Old Mac, and he is now the director of grounds and director of all the golf courses there. Ken Nice was the reason Pacific Dunes turns out so good. Ken Nice and his crew is the reason Old Mac turned out so good. It's the agronomics and it's the superintendents that pour their heart and soul into the into the agronomics of the golf course architecture. So Ken and I were walking down with Mr. Kaiser, and we got to the fifth hole short. And I had the flag uh, flagged out with pink flags. You got to remember, it was all sand after Tony Russell and I had shaped it. And I had the uh, green flagged out, and Mike walked up to Ken and I, Ken Nice and I, and he says, Jim, how big is that green? And I said, I don't know, Mike. Uh, I, I don't know. And so, you know, I was trying to, uh, uh, I was trying to forget he asked that question because I knew he was going to be concerned. So we walked a little bit. We walked up on it and he said, Jim, 
how big is that green? I said, you know, I don't know, Mike. And by then I figured out he wanted to know how big it was. And right. so Ken and I pasted off and it was like I said to Mike, I said, it's, it's around 17,000 square feet. And, you know, Mike in his typical Mr. Kaiser way just kind of looked and said, hmm, 16,000 square feet, 17,000 square feet. So we walked around it and I said, Mike, it fits the scale and the ocean is in the background and nothing can compete, compete with the Pacific Ocean. So I thought the scale looked right. He, he accepted the fact that it, you know, it was going to work. I showed him all the ways to putt around it. I made sure that there was a bump to hold this pin and there was a bump to feed the ball. And it didn't have the thumbprint like all the other shorts had, but it had three distinct pinning locations. And that's what McDonald and Rayner always tried to do in all their shorts. But we put our twist on it, 17, 16 to 17,000 square feet, a lot of fun to play. Uh, I, could, I could putt on that green all day long. So after we had had discussed how the putting surface was going to work again it wasn't copying the template holes exactly it was using inspiration so we went to the sixth hole long we created the, the hell bunker and mike wanted a way to play around it so we gave you 90 feet of fairway to play around the hell bunker and i got a little creative on the green mike kaiser's was suggesting to create the ocean hole at, at, at old mac the seventh and so it was a combination of inspirations of the template holes. And I believe that we delivered in the same way that McDonald and Rayner would have done for any one of their clients in, in the 1910, 1920era. I can tell you that that green at five is big. It doesn't make it any easier to make a two, though. That, that's for sure. I don't know who well, shaped it, but it's hard to putt. Tony Russell, <laughs> Tony Russell and I shaped it. Oh, I love that green. It's I so cool. Shaped, I love it. I float all the greens out uh, on all of the golf courses I was involved with, except for uh, number two, the Eden. Uh, Brian Slonick, a very talented shaper, floated that one out. So obviously you've got the you've got the templates in the back of the mind, probably you know at all times, even well well before Old Mac. I'm curious, does it feel ever, you know, do you ever feel hesitant to to go to them, or 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 does it uh, is it always kind of a nice trick up your sleeve? I'm, I'm thinking about you know 17 at Pacific Dunes, for instance. You know, does that does that make sense to do you know right when you see it like this fits a redan or is it is it something you're trying to work in how does that work i gotta tell you a story a lot of people don't know this so we got to the 17th hole of pacific dunes and that wasn't the original way the hole was going to play 16 17 and 18 don't think about how that plays now 16 and 17 and 18 were going to be different in the routing but it turns out that the 16th hole that you play today was a uh, was a can't miss hole so we climbed up the hill and and, and we and we played down uh, to the northeast uh, with a short one one shot hole the 17th and tom and i played with it and we played with it and we played with it and neither of us ever said to each other the dreaded r word <laughs> and i said to him i'll never forget standing there i said you're gonna build the r here aren't you <laughs> and he's and he wouldn't answer me and he wouldn't answer me and we played around with it and played around with it and it just kept evolving it kept evolving and uh, we were done at one at the end of the day we were walking in down 18 and i said you couldn't help yourself you had to do it you did it didn't you you, you built the r i refused to say it 
but it was the Redan. <laughs> and so that was our little moment in time at Pacific Dunes. Mike, came, Mike Kaiser came back, walked the hole, really liked it. Tom was happy the way it turned out. But, but there's always one of those holes sitting in every routing. There's always one of those templates that could be used because you're, you're used to them. You love them. You've seen them. You understand where they came from. The road hole at St. Andrews, iconic golf hole. The Redan at North Barrett, iconic golf hole. So they're always in the back of your mind. Do they need to be in every new golf course and never new routing? Well, if you ask David Kidd, he says, come on, Jim, you've got to build your own designs. You can't use those templates all the time. And you're right. You don't use those templates all the time. But 17 at Pacific Dunes, it just kept evolving into the R hole. And eventually it ended up being. But it's a great hole. I love to play it. It's perfect for the wind direction that it's that it that it plays into in the summer and even in the winter. It's a great hole. I love it. So what? It's the Redan. I'll finally say it. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to uh, assume here, but I mean, obviously, since uh, since Old Mac and since Pacific Dunes, you've you've done a ton of uh, restoration work, renovation work, and and a lot of stuff that really has to do with a lot of these template holes and a lot of this kind of golden age architecture. I, I gotta assume Old Mac was a a massive help help in that process, right? Well, it, it I always my favorite golf course golf course is the National Golf Links of America. It has been since 1986 when I first went to see it while working for Dyes. And so I fell in love with it. And I thought to myself, what if I could build this someday? Who would have thought 20 years later I would be doing that? So never say never. But I can tell you that I have some new designs with Mr. Kaiser. I have a new design layout with Michael Kaiser. And I think about those holes. I think about the punch bowl. I think about the Alps when laying out these golf courses, but are they going to look like the punch bowl at Old Mac or the National or uh, Camargo or, or Fisher's Island? No, they're not, but they were the foundation for many Lynx golf holes in Scotland and Ireland because the greens were in these natural punch bowl settings. So you have to think about them when you're laying out new designs. And so I'll never forget them. They always draw inspiration. But to say that I would do one, I don't think so. But you never know. So to, you, you said the word punch bowl a couple times, which reminded me of another contribution of yours at Bandon Dunes. Of course, the, the putting course, the punch bowl. What was, what was that like to build? And, and I, I got was it just kind of cathartic to actually be able to go nuts and build 6% slopes and all these things you could never do on a real golf course? Or what, what did that feel like? Well, that was, that's funny. I remember getting a call from Mike Kaiser and he says, Jim, I'd like to do a putting course a big putting course. And I said, Mike, you mean like the one, the ladies putting course in St. Andrews? And he says, yes. And I had been to St. Andrews and I had putted on it. So I knew exactly what he was trying to do. So I sent Mike four locations at the Bandon Dunes Resort that could be possible locations for a putting course, not punch bowl at the time, but a putting course, much like the one at the ladies course, putting course at St. Andrews. So one of the sites was behind Bandon Trails. Another site was that open grass area 
by the first tee at Old Mac. Uh, I found another site uh, uh, out by the practice ground. And then the last site I drew up or I labeled in a map was the one at Pacific Dunes. A lot of people don't know this, but we were originally going to build a one-shot hole in that location at Pacific Dunes where you would tee it up by the clubhouse and you just sh hit a shot down by uh, uh, by a green that we built. But we never did that. We were always talking about doing that. But when Mike decided on the location for the punch bowl, I started to clear the land and, and started to come up with uh, landforms and, and how I was going to shape it. And the first iteration that I did, Mike said, <laughs> you think what you putted on the day you were there was crazy. You should have seen the first iteration. I I was like going nuts. I would started with the bulldozer and then I got on an excavator and I started shaping with an excavator and I would go in a counterclockwise rotation. And then when I was done, I'd re I would go back in a clockwise rotation with the same excavator creating all these leader features i never thought about how it would route and putt and play i was just creating features and then i walked mike josh lesnick uh and uh, uh some of the kemper people around and showed them how you would put an arrow down and you would do like the a ladies putting course you would point the arrow in the direction and then you could put the hole wherever you wanted to put it and i actually had two 18 hole routings laid out but they decided to go one 18-hole routing that you could play in different directions. So the first iteration, we all walked around it, and, and Mike asked if I could you know, change this a little bit and change that a little bit. So I did all of that. It took me, oh, geez, three or four or five days to float it all out with help from, from uh, Marcus, um, uh, who was the superintendent at Old Mac now. He helped me float it out. We built it with the, with the maintenance group from Pacific Dunes, and... Uh, we did it all in about a month. A lot of fun to play, a lot of fun to build. I didn't have no plans. I just built it, had Mike do a little bit of edit work, and and we shaped it, and and uh, and uh, it opened up, and and it's perfect for what its its purpose is for social fun interaction, putts that you would never think about, putts that you would you're going to discover. It's the perfect complement, Mr. Kaiser. Always thinking. And what a fun place to hang out. I remember uh, the first time you and I spoke, you asked me if I had, had been to the Punch Bowl. And I said, I've even been there sober a couple of times. You know, it's, uh, it is such a cool spot. It, it's it's just such the cool kind of spot. place that makes you feel like a, you know, eighth grade kid to just hang out and run around with your buddies all day. It's just, it's awesome. Well, I told Mike one time that I think I should go build one of these in every city across the United States. What better way to teach and, and tell people about golf courses by just handing them a putter and a ball? If I could find out who I would talk to in New York, I'd love to do a punch bowl putting course in Central Park. What if they, what if they had a little booth, they handed out a putter and a ball, and families could go putt like at St. Andrews? I wish I could talk to somebody uh, on the board at Saint, uh, in Central Park and say, let me build a punch bowl putting course in Central Park, and you'll see the social aspects of people having fun with family and friends. A hundred percent. That's that's an awesome idea. I, I know uh, we've we've kept you for a while here. The only other thing I wanted to uh, 
Well, I want to ask you about a lot more stuff, but I'll limit it to one more thing, and that's uh, your restoration at Pasatiempo, which which just turned out so freaking cool. I mean, we were there a couple years ago, and that place is just otherworldly. I'm I'm curious how that how that starts. I think this is probably a bigger question, but I mean, when when you go to to one of these clubs and and you've been at a lot of the historic ones, I know Yeman's Hall, Valley Club, San Francisco Golf Club, uh, a lot of those. I mean, that that's got to be a that's got to be quite a process to to start you know, figuring out exactly, you know, we want to do something, Jim, you know, what should we do? And so I guess I'll limit it to Pasa Tiempo. What was that process like with them? Well, you know, uh, Alistair McKenzie died and lived and died on the sixth hole at Pasa Tiempo. His house was there. And so the mandate from the committee, the mandate from the general manager, the mandate from the membership was that this golf course, although it had gone through uh, modernization. It had gone through iterations from other golf architects. It was time to recapture the essence of what Marion Hollins said to Alistair McKenzie and Robert Hunter, build me the Pasa Temple Golf Club. And so when the, when the committee, the membership, the general manager, Scott Hoyt, uh, who is now there, Justin Mann, the superintendent, when they said, we are going to restore this to, to the best of your ability, Jim, help us restore this to what Alistair McKenzie had. I took aerial photographs. I took ground photos. I worked with Bob Beck, the historian, for 20 years, a labor of love to recapture what Alistair McKenzie and Robert Hunter had done. And with Marion Hollins as the lead developer, bringing out the best of what McKenzie did at, at Pasa Tempo, restoring it, a labor of love with the help of superintendents, general managers, archives, aerials, the goal, and nothing will be ever done to Pasa Tempo that is out of character of what Alistair McKenzie would have done and did. What? How would you, for someone who's never been there, what, what makes that place so special to you? Well, first of all, it's the landform and the cant of the landform towards the ocean. Second of all, it's the, the, the barrancas or the ravines that are located and intermixed about the golf course. It's the walk. It's the elevation changes. It's the, the, the bunk green, the, the style of green. It's all of those things in a beautiful setting, uh, uh, looking out towards the Pacific Ocean, it's one of the great routings in golf in a, in, in a land plan development. That land plan was done by uh, the Olmsted brothers who, who laid out Central Park, as a matter of fact. So Mackenzie, working with the Olmsted brothers, working with Robert Hunter, working with the vision of Marion Hollins, creating a golf course that's easy to walk, entertaining, using the natural features of the barrancas, the landforms, the hillocks, the, the 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 valleys and and creating a golf course that could be enjoyed by all it's it's something that you have to experience it's something you have to see and to know that Mackenzie would walk out of his house and hit balls on the sixth hole and call it his home uh, that's a special place open to the public everybody should see it 
Well, I, I will get you out of here on this one. I know uh, we're obviously rolling out a ton of, of Bandon videos. We had Old Mac last week. We had Pacific Dunes this week. So since you're in a unique position to, to answer this question, give me your, your favorite thing about Old Mac, your favorite thing about Pacific Dunes. I'll tell you my favorite story about Pacific Dunes. And there's many. There's many. <laughs> but I'll never forget they had preview play uh, on the first 12 holes at Pacific Dunes. And I was coming in on the evening walking from number 13 green. I had walked down 13 green, down uh, uh, three fairway, and I had come up on top of the three tee box and down into the second green at Pacific Dunes. And I ran into a couple, a foursome that was playing. And they said, where are you, where are you coming from? Are you playing? I said, no. I'm coming from the other part of the golf course that will be open next year. And this lady looked at me and she says, you know, I have enjoyed my walk here on this golf course. I don't even play golf. And it's one of the most beautiful walks I've ever had. And I just stopped and I was stunned that somebody that doesn't play golf, but enjoys the beauty of outdoors described Pacific Dunes like a park that she could stroll through every day. But if she had only known what we had done to create Pacific Dunes, it was the highest compliment I could ever have. And I thought to myself, the beauty, as Mackenzie said, the walk, the specialness of somebody who observed it from a non-golfing eye, it was the highest compliment I could ever have. Well, that, that seems like a good place to, to cap it. Jim, I sincerely appreciate the time and, and uh, appreciate your work. It's been it's been awesome getting to know uh, the Bandon Golf Courses a little bit more, and, and that's in, in huge part thanks to your help. So I uh, appreciate it. Uh, we got to do this again sometime. I love it. You can tell my passion for what I do. <laughs> working with Mr. Kaiser, working on the coast of Oregon. Call me back anytime. All righty. Well, take care, and, uh, and thanks again. Thank you. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Johnny, that's better than most. How about in? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything.